This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. How's it going, beer buddies? Welcome to another week in the life of the Hot Four podcast, and what a week it has been. Uh, funnily enough, everything I've done this week seems to have revolved around social media. Um, so, no doubt, pardon me, I apologise about that. I'm drinking uh, Lost Industry, uh, What Planet Are You On?, which is a sour barley wine. It's very nice, and I didn't mean to burp into the microphone, but... Um, hopefully you make us some of that sour aroma through your ears, if that's even possible. Um, firstly, I've noticed a lot of rebirths of beer styles over the last few weeks that are back on trend. So West Coast IPAs back again, ESBs have made a return, and even the Humble Mild is making an appearance again. Um, and when I visited Eyes Brewing in Bradford on Monday for next week's episode we were chatting about some of this and then pip who's one of the business partners behind the brewery said in the break i thought you would ask me about my thoughts on sexism within the beer industry which then led to a conversation about some of the things she comes up against as a woman in beer uh, and then funnily enough the following day an article that appeared in the Great Lakes Brewing News, written by Bill Metzger, was brought to the public's attention by Kate from Pipeworks Brewing Co. and beer writer Melissa Cole, which was rather disturbing and chauvinistic and quite frankly weird about cast beer and women. Um, obviously, the reaction over social media, as you can imagine, was to be expected and was somewhat justified. There was shock, sadness, anger, outrage and all kinds of animated gifts in response. Um, so this week's interview couldn't really have come at a more timely moment um i caught up with matthew curtis a great beer writer and journalist and commentator on beer culture and the industry to chat about everything from social media and beer trends uh, to legacies and touch upon some of the classic debates surrounding the modern beer culture uh, so as ever if you like the podcast please leave us a nice review on itunes hit the subscribe button if you haven't already and follow us on social media at hot four beers and now i'm going to finish off this wonderful sour barley wine from a good friend jim at lost industry and leave you with the thoughts and musings of matthew curtis Today on the podcast, I'm joined by award-winning freelance beer writer and photographer and consultant, Matthew Curtis. Hello. How are you doing, Nick? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? How's it going? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very well. I've um, I've just come in from the rain from a bit of a long run around where I live in North London, and the, the legs are aching, but I've got a beer now, so uh, I'm uh, uh, starting to relax and enjoy my Sunday. Uh, happy days. It's been sunny up here all day, so not to rub it in. But, oh well, but when well, you well, well, that's it. When you live in the north, you know you have to kind of hang hang on to every thread of sunshine you can because they're very Absolutely. rare. So, <laughs> so um, I mean, you've lent your voice to the beer industry and culture for some time now. Um, but for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with you and your work, can you give us some background on who you are and how you became well known in the beery circles? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I um, I have always been into my beer, and you know the classic tale of my dad's into his beer. And uh, and so beer was very accessible to me from a young age, you know, 
I had a dad who was introducing me to beers like Chimay and Duvel when I was just 16, 17, uh, because he had them in the fridge and I was fascinated by them. Um, and then in my early 20s, I really got into to real ale. Um, and then it would be my dad, again, having an influence on me. So he works in agriculture. Well, he just he just retired at the end of 2018. But uh, he got a job in Colorado uh, and he moved there in July 2010 to a town called Fort Collins. Um, and for those that don't know, Fort Collins, Colorado, a town of 150,000 people. It's got over 20 breweries, two of which are Odell and New Belgium, which are two of the most uh, fantastic sort of legacy American craft brewers. Um, can't believe I'm calling them legacy craft brewers because they're like 25, 30 years old. But that's kind of what they are mm. in today's market. Um, and just going to the Odell tap room and drinking fresh American IPAs at the source for the first time was one thing. But it wasn't now looking back, it wasn't just the beers. It was this tap room culture, this this uh, this beer culture that I didn't see in the UK. What I did see is people talking about pubs closing down and, and maybe uh, our drinking culture changing but not finding its place. But I just became fascinated with US beer culture, which spread into coming back and looking into the UK beer culture. Uh, I became a pain to my friends. All I wanted to talk about was beer. Uh, and um, all I wanted to do was just try the latest beers, as, as you do when you get really into beer for the first time. Absolutely. Um, and something I always did when I had hobbies was write about them on a blog. Um, and I had I, I I am really into my musical instruments. I'm a, I'm a guitar player, and I used to write about. I used to work in the guitar industry years ago, and uh, I used to write about that. And uh, no one no one read it. But in January 2012, I started a beer blog called Total Ales. And um, the difference here was people actually read it. And uh, when people start reading you, you get sort of a bit of gumption to write a bit more. So uh, I just did that. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And then 18 months of, of blogging led to my first professional uh, writing commission. I uh, worked with um, a couple of guys, Chris Hall, Rory O'Toole, and Craig Heap on a book called The 100 Best Breweries in the World for, for Future Publishing. Future don't do a lot of beer stuff. They do like PlayStation magazine mm -hmm. and, and uh, tech magazines. Um, but um, yeah, um, so from that, uh, I had a little platform and a little pub near me. Uh, I don't do events with them anymore, but for a few years I did events at this pub called The Duke's Head in Highgate. Um, I started writing for Ferment Magazine, who I've been, I didn't realize I've been writing for them for, for almost five years. It's crazy. Um, and then uh, I uh, got a gig writing for Good Beer Hunting in the US. Uh, and this was all on top of my full-time job. Um, and it got to the point where I said to myself, I think I can make a go of it as a freelance writer. And my friends and family were like, whoa, that's a bit crazy. You've got a good job. I'm like, mm, I think I'm going to make a go of it. But I saved up some money and then I went freelance in um, January 2016. Um, and I make most of my living now from uh, as a freelance writer and journalist. Um, I write, still write for Ferment, not with Good Beer Hunting anymore, uh, but working for Australian Brews News. I just did a, a photographic feature uh, for um, Original Gravity because I also, when I started writing about beer, I picked up, I, I bought a camera and I got really into it and that kind of um, jumped the shark as well and became very much a part of what I do, the, 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 the image-based sort of photojournalism that I, that I contribute. Um, and... It just went from there, really, and and now I'm just, you know, working as a freelance writer, um, and it's 
it's ups and downs. Some some months you, you're so busy you, you can't think, and some months you're you're crazily pitching everyone. But that's I call it the roller coaster, the being freelance because it's not as co- not consistent like it like it like going to work normally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I top up my writing by doing a bit of freelance photography um, for breweries and bars specifically uh, because I spend a lot of time in breweries, so yep. um, they really appreciate having a photographer that like doesn't stand in the way of brewers when they're digging out boiling hot um grain from the mash tun and they uh uh you know doesn't trip over hose pipes and knows what caustic is and knows to stay away from it <laughs> yeah. so that, that that's beneficial as a photographer and work with a few bars as well do a little bit of consultancy mostly on um the brand side as an example of that is i worked with signature brew last year on the launch of their imperial stout anthology mm. kind of taking their branding in a different direction to help them uh, reach uh, more of the sort of hardcore craft crowd. That was the aim of, of that. Um, and I do a few bits and bobs like that. And I run events, uh, tastings, and I've done some beer festivals. And uh, they're they're a lot of fun. Um, there's not a lot of money in in the event side of things, but there is. They are great for uh, getting yourself out there and 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 uh, meeting people, which is which is a huge part of of what I do. I you know I try and. Go, to, go along to as many festivals as I can and, and uh, as many beer events just to try and keep up with it all, which is exhausting. Beer, the beer industry is, is as you know, yeah. pretty mad. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the potted history of, of how I became uh, a beer writer. Nice. It's interesting because um, you, you, I know from your blog you joined the 4.2 million people that drying you this year. So, yeah. um, like, as as a beer writer, that as you sort of touched upon just then, goes to these different events and is very mm. much involved in you know the beer industry and, and being at these things and experiencing it and then documenting it. Like, how do you sort of stay on that, on top of that, as a you know from both a mental health and a physical health point of view? It's a very good question. So I didn't take, didn't do all of dry January. I, I did three weeks, um, and uh, the reason for that was because I, you know. I, looked at the scales and I, I put about a stone and a half on since I went freelance and it got to the point where I'd, uh, I could feel it. I could feel it. Uh, I could see it and it was bringing me down a little bit. So I was like, well, I need to, to lose some weight and, and beer is calories and mm. the only really effective way to, to diet as far as I'm concerned is to, is to monitor your calorie intake and by not drinking beer, it's essentially cutting out, um, those empty calories and then combining that with a bit of exercise, I managed to shift a bit of that. And I feel, feel much better because as I said in some blog posts I wrote around the time I'd like to be doing this gig in 10 20 plus years um, and the only way I'm going to be able to do that uh, is to look after myself physically and mentally uh, so this gave me a bit of downtime um, I, I didn't feel some of the benefits that some people say like my sleeping didn't change a lot of people say oh you sleep so much better when you don't drink that didn't change for me at all in fact I missed that I, the, the sort of Friday night couple of beers Feeling that relaxation—that's mm. an important part of my routine. And and I missed I missed going to the. I mean, I did go to the pub, but I missed that sort of uh, camaraderie of having a pint uh, in the pub. Um, I don't I don't really drink a lot at home. I'm I'm a I'm a pub drinker, and I'm very lucky that I live in a, in London where there are lots of wonderful pubs and bars where I can drink excellent beer. Um, so so I really missed going out actually when I was drinking, and I did go out a couple of times. And one one night I drank six. Uh, sort of craft sodas from a company called square root here in london which are great but normally i drink one or two but i was out for a while so i drank six and i had a noticeable sugar high and crash that was horrible um uh but uh, yeah it it's it was important for me 
Um, my aim is if I can, um, as I said at the start of this podcast, I just got in from a run. My aim is to keep on top of my fitness so that when I come around to January uh, 2020, I, I, I can look at the, the scales and say, okay, I'm happy with how I am. I don't need to take a few weeks off. But I know it's really common in the industry. I know so many brewery workers that did dry January. Pete Brown, the beer writer, does it every year. Um, it's really important for the health. And I would say that people who work in beer, such as myself, because I had a couple of people criticize me for not supporting the industry in their toughest month, mm. which was which was a bit tough for me to swallow because the other 11 months of the year, I can guarantee I spend far more money than your average person uh, with, with bottle shops and pubs because beer is my passion. Uh, so that, that I wanted to take three weeks off for myself and, and then be accused of, of uh, showing a negative side to supporting the industry. That, that was... That was uh, I didn't enjoy those comments. I expected to get them. Um, That's but, really tough, uh, though, isn't it? You know, because yeah. social media plays such a part in like the how people perceive stuff. Like, you know, it's, you're very in the now on social media without the big picture. Yeah. So, you know, and, and people don't, you know, probably don't think like you just sort of pointed out that the rest, the rest of eleven months, yeah, you, you're spending a lot of money. You, you're 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 re-putting something back into the economy and th- yeah. into the beer industry through through what you do, both through from a promotional side of it with your writing. Through to a, you know, you're literally handing your money over to these mm. to bars, bottle shops, breweries. Through what you do, um, I mean, what what role do you think social media plays in the sort of mental well-being of the world of beer? Uh, it's interesting, and you know, you, you hear people call it beer Twitter, um, which is a shame because it's it's not beer Twitter. It's just it's just the online discourse. Um, it's what it's what the internet is like. I've mm. I've used the internet for over twenty years. You know, I, I was using it from the days of dial-up. I'm 100% addicted to the internet. I love it. I love Twitter. I love Instagram. Not so keen on Facebook. Uh, but, uh, you know, the internet is what enabled me to, to start self-publishing and, and, and turn that into a career. Um, so so I absolutely love it. And and sometimes I definitely am responsible for, for having uh, questionable discourse mm. uh, by, by not because sometimes the thing is with the immediacy of Twitter in particular is that sometimes you, you it's reactive rather than thoughtful. Yeah. Um, and that happens in beer a lot because beer is an intensely opinion-driven uh, culture, and uh, people are very passionate about beer, and passion will always boil over. I actually think we, we most people are getting better at. at, at having discourse because they're aware that people some people will be quite reactive and i think the fact that there are these strong opinions is is actually a sign of a healthy market if people were ambivalent about it then that would show that there was a lack of interest Mm. um so so i know sometimes it can be a bit tough um my if it's affecting your mental health and i i suffer from anxiety you just got to put the switch the moon on on the phone silence notifications and and uh, put the phone down. Uh, vid- video games are my escape. Video games are like video games and running because I can't be interrupted for a couple of hours. And so it's I, I do especially at the weekend. Like today, I've barely looked at it. Um, but then I know tomorrow I'll be like I have a tab open while I work on an article yep. because that's that's I just like to to monitor it. Um, and I do feel that as as a writer, if you're not keeping up with with that conversation, you can miss some some key things sometimes um and also what i love about twitter is there's no way of differentiating between industry and consumer they're all in there Mm. all part of the same space everyone's on equal footing um so yeah i think people could be and i try 
my best and sometimes I fail utterly at this but I try to be as mindful as I can about the kind of conversations I'm having I'm strong-headed though and, and if I see something I don't agree with I will stick my oar in that's just that's just how I am but I do I do try you know before I press tweet I do think do I want to say this and sometimes I I delete tweets some 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 stuff that I knew would be I can't say that I you know I delete it and sometimes maybe I'll tweet something and go I probably should have deleted that uh, but most of the time I think it's it's a good healthy mindful discourse uh, but if it's if anyone is listening and thinks it's not I just you know d- delete the Twitter app from your phone that's that's the so you can't look at it that's that's the best thing to do do it for a week and see how you feel I love a bit of debate so for me long may it continue yeah absolutely so how much of a role then do you think social media plays in the growth and success of brewing or beer businesses oh it's crucial like if you're not it's not just not just um twitter but all of it i mean what's happening on instagram now is that you know i look at some businesses small businesses particularly restaurants and and some wine businesses they don't have twitter pages they don't have facebook pages they just have instagrams but then they've got fifty thousand instagram followers and the, the engagement they get um i actually think beer is actually bar one or two brands beer is really not using Instagram effectively. Um, uh, I'm following a few restaurants and St. John Restaurant, which has been going for 25 years now, uh, but they have hired someone incredible to do their Instagram to tell stories. It just brings you in. You know, you feel like booking a table just when you see one of their posts come up. Mm. Um, and I don't see um, a lot of breweries doing that, and which is a shame because there are a lot of breweries. But yeah, your, your social media... You, you should be investing heavily in it. You should have someone who knows what they're doing, who knows that who's passionate about beer. Um, you know, look at some great examples. Uh, Claudia Main, who runs the, the the media side for for Five Points. Uh, Doreen Barber at Cloudwater, who's a really good friend of mine, um, she, uh, and Connor Murphy at Cloudwater. Um, they do a fantastic job of of stimulating conversation and, and opening up uh, the the brew house door to the consumer. And that's that's two examples, uh, and there's so many uh, people out there. I mean, John Keeling, he's not Fuller's anymore; he's retired. But his little philosophy, uh, the, the, the these little one-liners he would tweet as 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 brewing director of Fuller's, you know, they just they were very much behind the curtain, like what's happening in the in the brewing director's office. Um, so there's, I think, something that a lot of brands don't do is they don't think about. Uh, injecting their personality into their social media oh, absolutely there's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of breweries out there who's like yeah here's our new beer or they're retweeting on tap check-ins or um you know that they're, they're not really showcasing them and i think social media is the perfect place to 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 showcase that personality and that's so important you know it's, it's a crowded market with you know there's two and a half thousand domestic breweries plus all the international breweries importing you've just got to have you've got to be vibrant and alive online otherwise you're just going to get lost among the noise mm. you know I've, I've come across so many breweries myself and they tend to be this is no disrespect to anyone um but like you know it's kind of old the older sort of generation and i guess you know they've not mm. grown up with the internet um like our generation has because I, like you said earlier I, I remember getting dial up i was one of the first kids in my school to get like the, the internet um yeah. which seems a bit weird now you know um but you know it's there's this mentality of um which i've come across so often kind of like oh we just need quote unquote a facebook page or just need to have some posts on instagram and they don't realize like say you know it's it's about telling a narrative i've been thinking a lot about 
narrative recently and, and why it's so important, particularly in, like in the world of beer, you know, have, have building that story and like you said, that, that, that brand voice, for want of a better word, yeah, or injecting the personality into it. it fa- I find it fascinating, mm. you know, the whole um, ha- how social media really drives breweries forward, you know, the ones that have really sort of grasped the nettle, as it were, and, and run with it. Yeah. Um, I was speaking to um, another beer writer called Josh Knoll prior to Christmas. He wrote um, Barrel Aged Out Selling Out. He was saying to me when I was chatting to him about, um, he asked me what my thoughts were on what he dubbed as Instagram breweries. And it's a phrase, is it a phrase you've come across before? or is... I mean, I've seen it. Uh, I, I think um, like if people are being like negative towards breweries that have got a really good following on Instagram because they're making like hazy yellow beers and and taking photos of them from a low angle with no head and getting a thousand likes. Uh, you're only being cynical about that because it's successful. Mm. Uh, whether those breweries are showcasing the kind of personality I, I, I want to see from them, that's a different question, but they're creating engagement. So if you're cynical about that, then then you're cynical about where the, where the industry is heading. Um, and I think it's really, I can be bitterly cynical some days about, about the brewing industry, and I really have to, you, you can't, approach it with that mindset because it's uh if as soon as you start thinking negatively about it then you start becoming negative about it and uh there isn't actually a lot to be negative about in the beer industry if if you look at it mindfully and objectively it's actually pretty amazing but it's very easy to get bogged down so i I don't i've heard of the phrase instagram breweries um and hats off to the breweries who are who are doing it because like you know they should be the way I understand it is kind of like what what he meant because he asked me what I thought and I was like I've not come across this before so I you know I was, I was sort of mm-hmm. unpacking what I thought you know it's and it's it, it, so I was chatting to him and he's and we sort of drew this conclusion that some breweries feel the need to chase trends like like say hazy old brute IPAs to stay quote unquote relevant in the market. I mean, is this something you see happening? Because obviously there are breweries out there that you know, are, are leading the way, they're doing these beers, or I've noticed like West Coast IPAs are, are, are re-becoming a thing again, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think they ever really went away, but all of a sudden it's kind of like the, the name has reappeared, or even ESBs, you know, I've, I've seen an influx of ESBs recently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, wh- where do you draw the lines in terms of, or do you think a, a brewery should draw the lines in terms of like chasing trends or, or sort of setting them as it were? Because um, I know, like Cloudwater, obviously, I, I reference this quite a lot with people, but like Cloudwater mm. took off their ingredients from their cans last year <laughs> because they were like, yep. people are just kind of becoming these cover song breweries, which yeah. I totally agreed with. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what exactly do you think drives these trends and, and what do you think breweries can do to sort of um, not chase trends? Or do you think they should be? Do you think, you know, if, if people are seeing hazy IPAs, they should have a crack and have a go themselves? I think it's very important to. Um... If I was a brewery owner, thinking about trends, it's an incredible balancing act. I was thinking, I was talking about this only yesterday with with someone, because I I think that a lot. If you're a small business and you can sell like seventy percent of a of a week's production online in cans because there's hype around it and then generate the revenue from that, why the hell shouldn't you? You're a business. Absolutely, that is literally what you're trying to do. And that, um, but. Um, I fear that not enough breweries are balancing it because I've been thinking a lot about the future of the industry and a lot about uh, the word I keep using is legacy. You know, when I talked about um, New Belgium and Odell at the start of this podcast um, and the legacy they've built, and they've built that on the back of 
Odell IPA and, and New Belgium Fat Tire and then used that sort of gravitas to, to go into all sorts of wonderful beers. New Belgium with their sours is, is a great example. And I don't see very many UK brewers looking to build any sort of legacy, maybe one or two of the last five years. Um, I think the Colonel are a good example of a, of a brewery just by doing their own thing and not doing, not following any trends mm. and not changing. They're actually, you know, they're nine years old now and they are, they're the Colonel. That That's their legacy. Um, and I hope that in, you know, 10, 15 years, they're still doing exactly the same thing. Uh, and the beers are just as wonderful, but they're appreciated by 10 times as many people because, because people have just gradually become aware of them. But so many breweries sort of they're chasing chasing this sort of craft pound this 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 hype pound that I do fear that 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 is overlooking that you know I heard one London brewery is dropping some of its core beers uh, just to start to to give that capacity to specials um, and some of these core beers are wonderful and and they're, they're going to get rid of them all just so they can can you know job out hazy yellow beers and uh, you know what this is craft beer you know it's supposed to be about innovation it's supposed to be about doing things differently and i don't see innovation i see i see every hazy beer from the the, the cool set being a, a mosaic and citra hopped hazy yellow beer um dry hop within an inch of its life and i don't see varied portfolios you know i don't see i don't see stouts i don't see See, see reds and ambers. I don't see Kolsch's. I don't see Schwartz beer. Um, I, I just think, yes, there is a, a subset of, of craft beer fan that just wants hazy juice, and that's great. I love, I love a hazy beer. Um, not as much as it turns out. I love a West Coast IPA. It's some uh, Friday night was a bit messy getting into the beer. Doesn't have to say, but, but um, yeah, I worry that um, like by all means chase the trend. Um, and and be because you've got to be a part of it. You've got to be part of the conversation. That's essential. Um, but if you are chasing that trend, then I think you need to have one eye on like what are we building here? Like what what happens if you know Brute IPA was was a flash in the pan as far as I'm concerned. And what if you what if you're a new brewery and you invested seventy percent of your production in Brute Brute IPA and then everyone suddenly stops buying them because they realise actually I don't, don't like them much. I'm going to go for a pint of London Pride down the pub. And, you know, that's, that's what, you know, London Pride, great example, legacy, even, you know, as much as as much damage in the craft community as selling to Asahi will do fullers, such is the legacy of London Pride that, you know, 99% of the people won't bat an eyelid, they just continue drinking it. Yeah. You know, it's, that's, that's not going to change. That's why Asahi bought them. But I guess that's like what you said earlier about how, you know, as beer drinkers and, and brewers, you know, we're all, we're all quite opinionated, really, aren't we, <laughs> about you know, what we think. And... Um, it's very easy to get trapped in that game, particularly when you look at social media, you know, when you're scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and to think everyone thinks that everyone's doing this. And uh, my business mentor with um, with my brewery would say, Nick, the kind of drinker you are is such a small niche and minority in yeah. comparison to everyone else. Like, you've, you know, and a phrase I keep coming back to is you've got to stick to your guns if you want to be a cowboy. 
Like, mm. um, if, you know, I, I, I think, like that. I think of, um, <laughs> there you go. Um, like, I think of a brewery like Abbeydale in Sheffield. Like, I mean, they're, they're one of the few breweries that I think have really sort of smashed it in terms of keeping their loyal customers happy with moonshine, which is just yeah. like regionally, if, if not nationally, is, is like a, their flagship beer. But yeah. they've managed to sort of capitalise on the craft beer drinker with Heathen yeah. and, and their Emporium range and their Funk Dungeon stuff. Um, like I said, with, with London Pride, most people won't ever think who owns London Pride. And, and mm. does it really matter to most people? Whereas, you know, for hardened beer types like us, it's like, no, it does matter. It's, you know, yeah. it's, the, it's like selling off the family silverware. Going back to what you were saying there about uh, Abbeydale, they're a fantastic example of a brewery that maybe got forgotten about a little bit uh, outside of the, the local area. And uh, the way they are sticking to their guns, as you say, uh, with their, their core their core stuff, but then allowing someone like Jim Rangeley to, to, to open the Funk Dungeon and do all that experimental uh, sour beer um, and, and really well mm. um, and, and with, his, with its own unique signature within the world of wild and sour beer, that's exceptional and you know that's the kind of project that you know you don't make a lot of money from a wild and sour project because if you're spending like 12 to 36 months on a beer that can be blended um you're probably not gonna be able to sell it for the kind of premium you need to to, to you know cover cover the time that it costs to make the beer but you're creating something so memorable marble brewery are a great example for me of a brewery that have ridden out um ridden into the sort of the craft era very well because um they're core core beers. I'm, you know, everyone knows I'm quite an outspoken fan of, of Marble because um, mm. I, I love the people. I love their their pubs, the Marble Arch in Manchester, um, one of my favourite pubs uh, in the world. Really, um, the beer is the beer is uh, fantastic, and they balance the the the, the core pint, uh, dobber, uh, the, the legacy beers with some of the most um, uh, cutting edge specials that people people get. Uh, mad about Wylam in, in Newcastle, another great example of a brewery that's just really gone from being a family heritage brewer in the northeast to like to, to coming up with this ultra strong brand and a crazy amount of specials and and you know they've they've you know boarded that hype train, but at the end of the day they're still producing beers like Hickey the Rake and and Jake Head regularly. Like Jake Head's a beer now that if I if I see it. On tap, I will always drink it because it's one of the few beers that that uses some darker malts. As, as I love a, a sort of nice sweet multi character when I've got a bitter beer. I love that balance, and it's nice piney, citrusy hops rather than out and out juice. So it's the kind of beer I'm like, ah, oh, do you know what? I'll, I will try the hazy IPA on the second tap, but I mean, then I'll go back to something like Jake Head because it's refreshing and you know, it's six percent beer. I've had you know, it's, it's a dangerous one, but it's the kind of beer you can drink a lot of and they they balance that just right and i think that's really important how, how have you seen beer culture and breweries and their brands sort of evolve over the years as a journalist and on your travels i think i'm starting to see a lot more maturity um from from breweries in terms of the way they approach their brand i think if you're coming into this industry now and you're not thinking about as closely about your brand as you are about your recipes and to be honest this has been true since the dawn of, of like commercial brewing, mm. um, then then it's not going to work. You've, you've seen a lot of breweries rebrand recently, and mm. I think and some of them 
uh, you know, it's not been that long since their last rebrand. Magic Rock are a great example. I think Magic Rock have some of the strongest uh, branding. I was in a bottle shop on on Friday evening, um, and I was and whenever I'm in a bottle shop, uh, I like to. The great thing about bottle shops now is you can drink in, which is yeah, like long may that continue. So I'll have a beer, and then I'll just sort of stand up and I'll walk around the shop and I'll look at the shelves. And I looked at the shelves, and this is a, a London. It's my friends at Hot Burns and Black was at their shop. And so most of the beer they're stocking is is from South London breweries because they're in South London. And I looked at this shelf and it's all pretty much all cans now. And I look, I, was, I said to myself, what's jumping out? What's gonna what's gonna last? And it was the new Magic Rock cans that actually made me go, wow, they like they're quite striking. Uh, they they look different to everything on the shelf, uh, but they also look like they've worked with the same designer since since day zero, mm. uh, Rich Norgate. So. They, they, even though it's evolved, they have this really strong identity. They're immediately magic rock, and I hope in, in you'd, you'd hope that in five or ten years' time, that you still have that impact. I think Beavertown are another wonderful example of, of, of demonstrating of how controlling your brand internally uh, makes it so recognisable. If you go to Waitrose and just look at the selection, like Gamma Ray and Lupuloid just jump out of you. Because, I mean, Lupuloid is bright pink. So, you know, there's not many bright pink beer cans, but you can see that the, the effort and time they've invested in creating that identity, how that has an impact on the shelf. And um, if you, yeah, so I think more breweries need to invest in building a brand that um, that is, is uh, has longevity and memorable. I think some new breweries change, you know, this is the problem with limited releases. If you're doing different artwork, uh, on every release, you're not actually building a, 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 a tangible thread for the consumer to lead all the way back to to you as a brewery. It's just a pretty can that looks great on Instagram. Maybe that's an, maybe I've just defined an Instagram brewery for myself. Hmm. Um, but you know, if I um, if I was selling a can of beer to a consumer and they didn't and they saw a different beer and didn't immediately recognise it was from my brewery. Uh, I'd be disappointed in. Uh, I would say that we've failed to to bring that around and 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 get another sale from that consumer. So that's. I think. I think we're getting better. Uh, but I also think it comes comes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about legacy building. I think a lot of breweries who are chasing uh, the the hype, they're kind of chasing their own tail because they're not building something I see as being long lasting. And um, you know, as any brewer will tell you. Beer and beer has changed forever. Now we're not, you know, craft beer isn't going away. This it's always going to be there. Now you're always going to be able to have these beers on the bar. They'll steadily become more prominent. Um, but it only takes someone to come along with a, you know, a million pound investment and a nice new brewery and a great designer, and they could take your sales and they can build a build a, build a future and, and become your toughest competitor. So if you're not sort of on top of that all the time in terms of of like building this this uh this long lasting legacy then then you're going to struggle yeah so let's say you went into a, a brewery to do some consultancy for them and mm-hmm. um you know in in today's highly saturated and competitive market what what advice would you give them then to develop and differentiate themselves because it like you said about magic rock i was at magic rock with richard burrows a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. And um, it was something that we started talking about branding. And he was saying how um, 
because I said it, why, why did you make the decision to go to the, you know, the sort of um, the patterns on the cans rather than the little monsters? Cause I, I really like the little monsters. Mm. But he said that um, for a while it really worked for them, but they found that those cans stopped standing out on the shelves. And I think partly it's because other people started kind of not copying it directly, but the, the, you know, there was aspects of certain other designs of cans that just kind of all of a sudden made something that used to stand out. Absolutely. You know, when you saw yeah. a cannonball, you're like, wow, that's interesting. So just kind mm. of like, oh, well, it's just another it's another green can with some sort of fun designs on it. Yeah. Like, so if, if you went out to a brewery who was in that position, like what, what sort of would you say to them how to develop their business and their branding so they are they did they did stand out but they were sort of sticking to their guns i mean that's like the million dollar question isn't it (laughs) yeah it is i think um the first thing i would do is the great thing about being a freelancer is you realize that there are people freelancing in every field trying to do the best they can in their field and and that includes uh designers and illustrators Mm. and i would encourage any brewery um that is working on a brand to to find a designer that that fits their aesthetic and then get them on a contract, like find, find someone that is making images that fit exactly with the ethos uh, that you, uh, and your philosophy. Um, well, that's first thing is what's your philosophy as a brewery? Like what, what are you trying to do here? Everyone's making delicious beer. That's the aim. Mm. And you want to sell it and you want to be memorable. Um, but you need to have this ethos or philosophy, uh, and then you need to develop a brand on top of that. Because ultimately, you could make the, bre- the, the best recipes in the world, and they would be meaningless if you if you had nothing to back them up. And that you know, um, maybe there are one or two exceptions. I think. Pl- well, let's have a look at Pliny the Elder uh, from Russian River. Objectively, that's a that's a terrible piece of branding. But it's kind of evolved to, to mean something. Um, you know, people feel affectionate towards it. Uh, that's never going to happen again. You, you know, you're not going to you're not going to have that kind of uh, of uh, of luck. That was at a time when no one else was making a double IPA, and uh, and it sort of fitted into the market. But you can't do that anymore. Um, so yeah, I would encourage any brewery to to once they've got you know once they know what the how they want to appear to people, how they want to say it then finding uh, the right designer or designers or agency and, and sign them up like long-term, you know, if it's working, keep it, keep it working. Like, and they get them on the journey with you. If, if, if the brand isn't working in a couple of years, then get them to evolve it, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, I also think I would say that any, any brewery needs to develop core beers, uh, drinkable, sessionable, core beers um and you know whether that's your, your pale ale or and your stout and your red ale um i think having a an accessible range of core beers is is important um and that can ch- just because you've got core beers doesn't mean that that core range can't evolve but one you need to build a platform and then you can if you build a strong platform then you can put a rocket on it and launch it and that can be your hype mm. you know but without the sort of strong foundation your rocket's going to veer to the side and not going the right direction so it's it's just so important to have a consideration for every step of every every part of the business the person on the phone taking sales orders or the person you know designing your label the work they're doing is as important as the person in the brew house mashing in you know it's it's all they're all different cogs in in the same machine and if one cog stops working the machine's going to grind to a halt so i think um 
yeah, if you if you're just trying to crank out great beer, great. But um, if you're not thinking about uh, how you want to be perceived in the marketplace, then then it's a marketplace where perception is everything with two and a half thousand breweries. So uh, you're going to fail. Mm. Yeah. When I go out and see clients and talk about their branding and stuff, one of the things I come across a lot is the lack of understanding that with a, with a, a brand isn't just like like a like say a label. It's it's the entire it's the entirety of your business and how your salespeople pick up the phone, how your Draymond's dressed when he or she arrives delivering beer. You mm. know um, how your van's presented. Is it clean? You know the whole yeah. thing, and it's it's. I find it astounding, really, that um, you know a lot of people go have gone into the sort of brewing business. Um, you know, effectively, as home brewers, thinking that I want to I want to sort of monetize my passion, but it's a completely different kettle of fish running a business and developing a brand mm. than 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 brewing beer. Um, I also want to pick your brains on as, as well on the sort of cask versus keg, bottle versus can thing. Because you mentioned earlier about seeing mostly cans in, mm. in bottle shops yeah. these days. And it's something I've sort of picked upon. Um, I don't know if you know Sean Clark from Beer Central in Sheffield. He's got a sort of flag, he's got a flagship bottle shop. Mm. Um, I, but I call it bottle shop because he turned five last year. And on Facebook, you know, and this is kind of like five years ago, you know, it was him in this bottle shop with all these bottles behind him. Whereas you're going now, it's a completely different story. It's all cans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in some ways you could say the same with cask and keg. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more sort of breweries that are just turning their hands to, to keg. Like what, why, again, this is the million dollar question, but why do you think there's so much conversation about cask and keg or bottle and can and, and particularly around the subject of pricing, that mm. people get all heads up about it. Like, what, what, what's your take on all that? Let's, um, let's. There's, there's quite a lot of questions here. Let's break it down. Uh, we can talk about pricing afterwards, but let's talk about the formats first. And let's talk about small pack first, because mm. you mentioned bottles and cans first. I think the important thing to remember when it comes to bottles and cans is that five or ten years ago, the t- the canning technology that exists in mo- on most brew house floors now didn't exist. And if it did, it cost you one million, two million plus to to get that kind of technology. This was canning was the technology used by by Ball. It was the the premise of Coca Cola and and Budweiser, and you needed to be a massive company to can. And to be honest, if you ask any brewery what the most expensive piece of equipment is in the brewery, it'll probably be the canning line. Yeah. What we've seen in the last over the last decade is the introduction of, of new technology uh, and and the miniaturization of of canning lines. And it's, it's actually it's not just not just canning lines. It's everything. Lost Lost and Grounded's brewery in Bristol is a perfect example of of a huge company, Kroner, seeing a market advantage and going, "Hey, there's loads of small breweries. What if we offered something really high end, but smaller mm. than our giant brew houses we built?" And so they invented something called the microcube, which there's, I think there's a few of those out in the world now. But it's essentially a, a giant German brew house in miniature. Um, and that's, that is quite an expensive brewery, but they are very good. Um, and it's the same with canning. So I think the rise of, of canning is, 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 not, is more due to uh, the technology becoming available. And then the, what's great about cans is, is you know, I've got this – I mean, we're a podcast, so you can't see it, but they're just, it's just a canvas. I'm drinking this Yeasty Boys White Palace, and it's just a great can. You can't see it because I've got the light shining on it. Anyway, <laughs> take your word for it. Ooh, amazing! Use this big, this big, this canvas to to put a lot of uh, uh, energy into into making it look great. 
Um, also, like people, people commute, people get the train. You can carry six cans in in your bag, and it weighs half as much as six bottles. If you put it in the fridge, it's cold in half an hour. If you take it out to the park, it's still cold in half an hour. Um, the, the main problem in in small pack is is uh, dissolved oxygen and and oxidization of of beers and them going stale. And there is a genuine problem with because the the, the hole the beer goes in is is you know, four times the size on a can that is a bottle. So it's going to take in more oxygen. But one brewer said, I don't want a can, um, but I'm doing it because we're selling the beer five times as fast. So it's, I don't have to worry about any, you know, the, the oxygen ingress is tiny, but, you know, the risk is mitigated by the by the demand. Um, consumers like different things. At some point, a brewery will come out with like 500 mil bottles with like totally uncool, you know, real ale. A brewery will come out in a few years and they'll package something really cool in 500 mil bottles and people go, oh, that's different. I want some of that. And that's just, it's just cyclical. But in terms of cans, there will be, cans are here to stay purely because of the the availability of the technology. Um, And most, uh, you know, if you're shipping a pallet of bottles versus a pallet of cans as well, the cost to the brewer is so much less. Yeah, totally. Shipping shipping packaging is essentially shipping air mm. and if you're shipping something that weighs four times less you know a pallet of aluminium um then that's going to cost you you know it's going to cost you a lot less so it makes it makes masses of sense if you can afford to can can because long term that's actually going to save you more money just um, interjecting there what what would you say to breweries that are are more sort of traditional in their outlook uh, and what they brew, but are kind of like, well, everyone else doing cans, you know, Northern Monk are doing cans, we need to be in can. Do you yeah. not, do you not feel that it's it's more beer led? Because I, I've come across breweries um, where that are more traditional that will, will brew an amazing cask beer, mm. um, but then they're kind of like, we need to be in a can, and they put it in a can, and then you know, I've sp- I've spoken to bottle shop owners, they're just like, I can't ship them. <laughs> You know, yeah. they reduce them to like 99p because it's kind of like, well, people don't associate that brewery with a can. Like, where, where do you sort of draw yeah. the line on all that? That's that's a really good question because um, I think, you know, Harvey's put Harvey's Best in a can. I, 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 I actually want Harvey's Best, you know, on cask. That's that's how I want to drink it. Um, it is, you know, it's like, you know, it's like Adnam's Bitter and, and London Pride's been in cans for years. You know, just, you know, Green King IPA. It's, mm. it's a supermarket can, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I think there's still an image, like if you, if you were at a restaurant and, and you spent 20 quid in a can, on a beer and you didn't know it was in a can and they brought it to your table to share, uh, it's not quite the same as having a 750 mil bottle. So there is an image thing to look at. I think, um, it's, yeah, it, it, it depends on the, on image, uh, a can is definitely has the image of, of drinking at home, uh, of 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 being a sort of casual uh, drinking vessel, and there is a um, a bit more a touch of class to bottles, especially larger format bottles like seven fifties. I, I love seven fifties. Mm. Like um, I, I think there's a great future for beer breaking into the restaurant industry, which is you know a huge obstacle for it. With with elegant beers packaged in seven fifties, and but you wouldn't in the same context you wouldn't serve a crowler like a liter and a half can, it's it's almost uncouth. Um, so yeah, I think you just have to be considerate of of 
image really if you're creating a beer that is that is hoppy and pale and you want to shift volume the can is a signifier signifier sorry that 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 you want to do that you that this is a beer to be quaffed i think if you're putting something uh, in a bottle then especially a larger bottle it does have a touch more class maybe um but not necessarily i mean you know pe- bottles aren't going anywhere and some markets demand bottles. Like restaurants are a great example. They're like, we don't want cans. And some breweries will run the same beer through the bottling line and the canning line because some customers like it bottled. Yep. And I think as breweries grow and more people consider their the beer ranges they're stocking, breweries will need to be able to adapt to what the consumer needs rather than what's, what's, what they think the consumer needs. Right. So then moving on then to cask and keg mm. um like what what are your thoughts on all that and i mean why do you think caspier often struggles to command a higher price point than um than keg beers the main thing with cask is quality um and we talk about the price of cascale and the falling sales of cascale and if, and if you think about it we'll come on to price in a bit because this is a huge thing as well and, impact, and price impacts quality, in my opinion. But the the problem is that the in so many pubs, and you know, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. That that buying a pint of Cascale is a lottery. You have no idea how long it's been on for. Mm. Uh, you have no idea if this pub is good at selling its cask beers. You have no idea if they've, they've put on a cask without racking it and it's just been delivered that day and it's all shaken up. Um, there's, it's if, if you go to a pub, you know, there are pubs in London I go to for cask because I know they serve a wonderful pint of cask beer. I know they've invested in their cellar. Uh, I know they know what they're doing. I know they pick the right beers. I, you know, one pub even puts a sparkler on it if it's from the north, you know, as it should be. And um, but most pubs are are not you know the too many pubs have handfuls. Too many pubs serve cast beer when they they probably shouldn't serve cast beer mm-hmm. at all. I am I'm actually of the thought that the, the market shrinkage that Cass is seeing is the best thing that could happen to it at the moment because if it is to become special and premium, it needs to remain small. And the problem is that that cask and you know this is thanks to the wonderful work Camera have done. And I really do believe they've done a wonderful job of. Are preserving this this wonderful format and now you go into most pubs and they've got handfuls on the bar um so yeah i do believe that that there's too much cask out there um and um whenever i go into a small pub and i see they've got six handfuls on for example i was like imagine if you had three and you had three really good cask beers on all the time and you were selling twice you were selling the cask at the same rate but you were you know, you were changing barrels more often. Mm. Um, I think there's, you know, pubs try to demonstrate that they know about their beer by by having loads of taps. And with keg beer, that's fine. Realistically, if keg is is tapped and stored correctly, uh, it, it should last thirty days. You you want to sell it way before then. Um, but but when it when a cask is tapped, realistically, the it's different for different beers. But the majority of beers need drinking within 72 hours but realistically you want to sell them on the same day yep. 72 72 pints of beer you know uh, in a nine gallon cask 68 give or take a bit of wastage um and you want to sell that if you if you're a pub and you put a cask of beer on on 
on Saturday lunchtime, you want to be changing it on Saturday evening for the evening session and selling another 72 pints. Whether that's the same beer or not, that's that's up to you. Um, so a little bit of shrinkage in the market might make people realize that actually we, we might have over-egged it and, and less is more in cask. Um, I do think it's great to see some of the newer, younger, trendier brewers uh, getting back into it. Um, there's a lot of talk on, on, on the language they've used and coming back to it, which is fine. You know, they're excited about getting back into cask beer and they're doing a great job of it. Um, and I think, you know, if if a, a younger drinker sees sees a Cloudwater or a Verdant beer on cask and tries it and likes it, then they might try the one next to it, they might, which might be an Abbeydale, mm. you know. There's, there's, there's so much great cask beer out there. Um, and it, it, you know, it could do with a little bit of hype injecting into it. And it's easy to be cynical and say, oh, you know, these breweries think they're saving cast, they're not. It's like, well, no, but they might actually help get a few more people into it. So it's, it's an incredible part of brewing history in, in the UK. It's not going anywhere. But um, I do think that, that quality is the problem. There's too much, too, too much beer that's too old, too warm, um, and, and not a lot of love in, put into it. And the reason I think the quality is poor is because it is a commodity product. Now, there's a, there's a huge. This is where we come into price. There is a huge elephant in the room that no one is really discussing at the moment because it's a very challenging thing to talk about, and that's class. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot because I I said the other day I, I paid five pounds fifteen for a pint of Timothy Taylor's Landlord in Central London. Now Russell Square is where all the hotels are, uh, where all the tourists stay, and everything's expensive there because it's so touristy. I could have gone to a pub in zone three or four and, and probably paid four pounds for a pint of Landlord. Uh, but no, I happened to be at an event in Russell Square and I, I went and that was the beer I fancied. So I paid paid the money. Um, but the, something that hasn't been addressed is, is class and how beer is seen as a drink of the working class. And in many cases, uh, it, it should be an affordable commodity accessible to everyone. And if you make it more expensive, then it loses that. This is this is a, the the next battle the brewers have to write be, have to fight because um, most beer is sold too cheap, uh, especially cask beer, uh, and this is because of the expectation that beer should be cheap. And cask beer, uh, cask is sold. People expect cask to be good value, so it's it's sold far too cheap, and it doesn't make uh, a landlord money. Uh, so, because it's not a margin driving product, why would you put all this effort into cellaring the beer and making it and making sure it's the right temperature and giving it the right number of days with the right spile and then tapping it just so it's got the perfect amount of carbonation? Why would you put all that time and effort into it when it's the lowest margin product on the bar? You wouldn't. You put you put your time and energy into what's making you money because you're trying mm. to keep the doors open. You're trying to keep you're trying to keep the heating on, um, and and keg beers, you know, keg craft beer c- commands margin. Um, less less so now that's getting more competitive. Um, but if if cask commanded the same margin as as keg beer, and much there is there are cask beers that you can you can make a lot of margin on. They might have questionable quality. Um, but if, if, if it was making profit for the, the publican, then 
undoubtedly they put more love into it because they're making it's making them money. You know, that's and I think that the the, the responsibility for this comes at every part of the chain, be that the um, the, the brewer, the distributor, the retailer. Uh, it's not going to change overnight. But then if if you put once you put the price up of your beer, then you're like, oh, you're excluding people who can't afford it, who have been drinking it all their life. So it's a bit of a vicious circle, mm-hmm. and it's going to take a lot of soul searching from the industry to figure out um, where it positions beer. Because because cask, you know, if you speak to any overseas brewer from anyone outside the UK, they idolise cask. I met some, you know, I met Matt Brindleton of Firestone Walker, uh, one of the most talented brewers uh, in the world. Firestone makes some fantastic beer. And um, he was at the Beavertown Extravaganza, and I said, oh, Matt, what are your plans when you're in London? We should Let's go get some beers. And he's like, oh, I've got my plan. I'm, I'm going to these pubs to drink cask. And it was a list of like, the classic London pubs, Ye Old Cheshire Cheese and the City of York <laughs> and, and the Harp. It's like, oh, I'm going to drink cask. It's like, all I want to do is drink as much cask as I could. And all the other American brewers at the festival were like, yeah. Like I was like, oh, I can take you here. We can, we can, you can try some of the the latest beers. You, you know, it's really great. It's like, oh, we don't want to do that because we can do that at home anytime. Um, so, and that was that's fascinating to me. And that's the same all over the world, whether the brewers are coming from Australia or New Zealand or Japan or Russia or Europe, or South America, uh, wherever they they come to the UK because they want to drink cask beer because it's our legacy. Um, and I think it, it it should be treated as such and. Uh, Unfortunately, what a lot of people don't realize is actually it's it's also a product that is kind of mired by its own legacy that it should be this working class drink that it should be cheap and in in many and this is the thing it should but also the people who sell it and make it should be making profit so that they can make more and build a sustainable business yeah so finding that balance this is why it's so heavily debated is because finding the balance is incredibly difficult and ultimately i think the problem is there's actually there's too much cast beer out there um there's you know if i go into a central central london pub and they've got like 10 handfuls i'm like like what am i going to do like roll a dice like like um i've taken to like standing back from the bar in a pub i don't know and watching them pour like wait for people to order cask and so i know the beer's being pulled through and the condition's good it's gonna be it's gonna be great or I just go somewhere like the Harp, where every pint is served perfectly every time because they sell so much of it. Mm. Um, and so, and what does that mean for the pubs that aren't doing a good job? Like, like casks should be a mainstay on their on their bars, and if people are avoiding them because the beer isn't served at the right quality, then you know that's uh, that's probably why a lot of pubs are struggling. I guess the whole cast thing is i mean there's a whole other episode for slash episodes you know right there about um, mm. about it. you know it's it's such a um i mean it's, you, you could go on about you know a lot of people complain about seba and um you know the prices that the chains are sort of paying brewers through beer yeah, the, and the thing is it, that's an, that's a whole other yeah totally thing um so yeah you know the, 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 this is what when I talk about it, it's everyone on the chain and people are adding their profits in, um, and that's you know that's the problems. The way the what pubcos charge their tenants for for beer is is uh, is sickening really, um, and the amount you know be be good if a few of them went went into administration, but uh, I don't see that happening. Um, but um, that yeah, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, totally. it's, it's such a such a difficult subject to to unpack. Because 
yes, it's bad, but actually most they own most of the pubs in the country. So are they are they sustaining the industry? How many people do they employ? You know, there's eight hundred thousand people working in, in in the industry from from brewery to pub, and like like if if you know, what's the argument is what if they're providing gainful employment for so many people? You know, mm. it, it, yeah, it's it's such a quagmire. Cool. And I try and get my head around it. There's some people very passionate about it, uh, and uh, it's something that will, you know, conversations are never stopping. People are always talking about it, and 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 uh, I'm of the I'm an optimist. I think I think we'll figure it out. Um, cask, uh, cask is going to go through an interesting one. I think it'll see a couple more years of decline, um, and then it'll start to see a bit of a a resurgence um led by the legacy brands again you, you know where people talk about pride and and uh landlord you know that soon becomes people talking about harvey's best and sent hostel tribute and you know uh hook norton old hooky you know when was the last time you had a pint of that i'm, I'm curious to go and drink i've not had one in ages mm. and i'm like what well, that becomes the next big thing um you know and then all of a sudden everyone will be brewing what you know some people call twiggy beers yeah this is what's happened in the u.s like people the u.s brewers railed against light lagers for so long and then they, they then they were successful and they expanded and then they had all this free tank space so what do you do at a brewery when you've got free tank space you make lager and now some of the trendiest craft breweries in the u.s are making light lager because Surprise, surprise! That's what most people want to drink, <laughs> and it's going to be this—you know—it's going to be the same in this country. It's like, oh, we we quadruple capacity of our brewery, and we're not selling enough beer. So like, oh, we could make a bitter in cask and sell loads of it. Like, Brilliant! Let's make a bitter. The that's SBs. exactly what's going. That's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, it comes back to the hype and trend thing, doesn't it? It's all yeah, cyclical. Yeah. So, well, I'd be great to have you on another episode, Matt. Um, chat yeah, about we'll all that. Again so, in a few months' time, I'll have um, a lot more to talk about. <laughs> for, for the time, for the time being, if people want to sort of read, read you know, read the stuff you're writing, where can they go? Um, the best thing to do is to follow me on Twitter. Um, my handle is Total Curtis T O T A L C U R T I S, um, or on Instagram using the same handle because I, I try and share everything I do. Um, my, my blog uh, is, which I use as my sort of photography portfolio and sell my sort of consultancy services these days is totalales.co.uk. And you can find uh, recent work in Ferment magazine, um, cameras, uh, quarterly beer magazine. Um, and uh, I've got an article in the uh, new original gravity, um, a little photo journalistic piece on, on, uh, on my, my uh, visit to Nashville last year. Um, so um, just uh, yeah, keep an eye on those. But if you follow me online, I'll 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 tweet the links to all of it anyway, so you can find me there. Awesome, brilliant. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Ford podcast this week. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, follow us on social media at Hot Ford Beers, and visit our website hotford.beer for more articles, insights, and a range of services aimed at helping you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Until next time, cheers. Right,